Ladies and gentlemen, before we get started on this episode, it's important to remember that we need to be empathetic and understanding of every single guest that I have on this show. So that way they understand that they can share this stuff without having any backlash coming from the community. I think it takes a lot of bravery for someone to come on this show and be able to tell about heart-wrenching things that occur. So please be understanding, empathetic, and supportive to my guests. If you enjoyed this content, it would really help me out if you did three things. You followed me on Twitter, you subscribed to me on YouTube, and you share out this video to any of your friends who might also enjoy this content. I hope you enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Deep Dives into the Minds of Esports. My name is Blake Panashevitz, and today with me, I have someone who you can really only call a legend. He has been a host, interviewer, team owner, helped build Gotfrag and Gotfrag TV, and maybe one of his most notable things is he helped create the Counter-Strike Professional Players Association. And really, if we look at everything that's been here, that's really only the tip of the iceberg with this gentleman. Please let me introduce Scott Smith, maybe better known as the wonderful Sir Scoots. Welcome. Thanks, gentlemen. I don't know. Oh, that stuff was really nice, but the gentleman part—I don't know. I'd probably have to for debate. But uh-huh. thank you, Blake. Nice to be on your nice to be on your little show here. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you coming on here. I have a lot of things that I want to talk to you about. You have been in the scene for a, a very long time. Not calling you old, but wise. Um, and <laughs> I think you have a lot to lot to offer to people. And I think delving into who you are as a person, because. You're someone who I've kind of looked up to as being someone who's willing to stand for a certain set of morals and stand up for what he believes in, and I've greatly appreciated that. And I think that that is a characteristic we need more of with anyone who's looking at esports or wanting to get into esports. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm an outspoken little shit, as I think what you just said. But yeah, always have been, even before like uh, the online world existed, I guess. So one of the a cool things, guys. Yeah, one of, the, <laughs> one of the cool things that we were talking about is you're actually born in, in Detroit, Michigan, and we were talking a little bit beforehand, yeah. and I'm actually from Michigan, too. So my first my first right-off-the-ball question, are just people from born in the Midwest or raised in the Midwest just better than everyone else? <laughs> We've moved around quite a bit, so I, I don't know. Um, I would say my formative years actually weren't spent in the Midwest. They were spent kind of more towards the West Coast in Lake Tahoe. So I don't know if I'm going to agree with the bias you're trying to lay down. Um <laughs> <laughs> but there is something about a Midwestern demeanor, whether it's Michigan, Ohio, that, that surrounding set of states that is a little different, you know, I think, than the fringes. If you grow up on the fringes or East Coast, West Coast or mm-hmm. down south, um, I don't know what it is. Uh, but, yeah, I don't I, I, I don't. Yeah, I can't. I can't go with you on it, Blake. Um, okay. West Coast, West Coast for life. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I, it's actually funny. I went to. So <laughs> I lived in LA when I was working with Gladiators, uh, like last year, and it was very odd living in LA for me because people are just very much different. In the Midwest, it's very common. Like if you were to break down, everyone would stop and say, "Hey, do you need help?" And in LA, it feels like a, especially LA, which might be a, a little sure, culture in itself. Sure. It feels very much uh, different and very much. Uh, individualized and it's it's a little bit it's it was very weird for me uh leaving the yeah i think you would find parts of california that are very much more like the midwest where someone would pull over but probably not 405 whatever la you're on you're on your freaking own it'd be the same thing there's probably new york city things wouldn't happen in your favor but rural other areas of new york state you would be treated differently i I think it's more of a metropolis mentality Mm -hmm. so looking at coming from detroit you know yeah uh, 
And going I, mean, I didn't say that I didn't live there very long. Like we moved when yeah. I was still a wee yeah. lad. Yeah, uh, a wee yeah. little lad. A wee little lad, yeah. So you you moved to uh, Lake Tahoe region and you grew up uh, there. That's in uh, Nevada, right? It's in both. It's in Nevada and California. The lake itself, Lake Tahoe. Yeah. If you look at the a map of California and Nevada, where the state line takes its turn between California and Nevada, is Lake Tahoe. So. Half of the lake is in Nevada, and then, you know, the shoreline, and same thing for California. So I lived on the Nevada side, in Incline Village, on the okay. north shore of Lake Tahoe. So, so one, both of the, states, one of the cool things about uh, you is that you're – I don't want to date you. You were born in 1966, and that has relevance for the, my next question that I, I'm going to ask. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so you didn't get into esports until you were in your 30s, um, Right. I think it was thirties. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess esports for me really started right around Counter Strike, maybe the year before with TF, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. But the idea of like esports and night wasn't even called then competitive gaming. Really, for me, would have been probably nineteen ninety nine in Counter Strike, and again a little before that with being aware of Quake. And uh, I was actually in a TF two, a TF clan, not TF two, TF clan like days before Counter Strike dropped and quickly left it because I quickly disjoined it. So. I would say those that year, 98, 99, is when I was realizing, like, oh, shit, people are actually, like, competing on this shit. But been a gamer all my life. So if I'm 52 now, what, you know, what is 1999 making? I would be 33. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's about, yeah. So about my mid, mid-30s, early 30s is when I was like, oh, shit, my hobby. that Because I've been, I had an Atari. I had a Mattel uh, on, on the school bus, a Mattel football game from the 70s, if you will, right? So, like, been a gamer all my life. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess it would have been right around Quake, Doom, that kind of shift into FPSs, and then certainly Counter Strike when it really grabbed. But nineteen ninety nine, really fine. Sure. So you got to grow up in a lot of historical events, and that's kind of what I'm what I'm leading towards. Is there was a lot that kind of happened uh, mm. growing up sure. through you. Like the big thing that came to my mind when I first saw that was like the Vietnam War. You would have been uh, nine when the Vietnam War ended, I think, right around there. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. And you were, you were living in Nevada, and I don't know what the the cultural climate was like around that area then. Uh, but do you remember anything about like uh, the Vietnam War, uh, anything going on, anything like that? I really don't. Yeah, I don't really have much recollection of like conversations or seeing TV or stuff um, about the war itself. Uh, a little bit more towards. Uh, like the end of middle school and high school where we were talking about it in class, right? But not so much about like sitting down with the family and watching, um, you know, the the nightly news about what was going on. I don't recall that stuff. I, Lake Tahoe um, itself is a very uh, transient touristy place. Like it, the nature of it, it's a tourist town. It's ski town. It's uh, in the summer, it's like a cold as shit, but it's a very transient uh, community. So a lot of people coming and going. Uh, so in that sense, the communities weren't really focused on it. It was almost like you were isolated from the real world in some mm-hmm. regards uh, up in the mountains. Uh, I Now, if you ask my parents, you know, was it a topic of the day? I'm sure it was, right? But like yeah. in my little isolated world, I don't recall uh, a lot about it. It's kind of funny because um, I watch a lot of documentaries. And a couple months ago, I, I finally watched the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, and it's like 20 hours or some insane amount of hours, and Ken Burns does some great, great documentary. Uh, and it really 
it was interesting because again, like it's so it's such a nice chronological story. Like I was then starting to think about stuff like okay, like okay, how old was I then? Okay, and I, I, again to your point, I don't remember or your question. I don't really remember anything. Like I remember when that happened. I don't remember any of that, right? So, mm-hmm. um, like I was. And side note, I was watching a Disney Walt Disney thing yesterday. Uh, he died in '68, and I was like, shit, like. All these things, and like Snow White is from the 30s and stuff, and you just don't think about some of this stuff, right? So th- those things I did grow up with, right? But in my mind, he was already gone as a as a person. But Disney is just coming up. Anyway, not really the question you asked, but so that particular public event, more so as I got older. So like in the 80s when I was in high school, right, where we we were discussing the seven concussions, water, all this weird, but more like in civics class and government's class, but. Um, yeah, not, not again. Not uh, we didn't have. Um, maybe part of it was also my family didn't have any military people directly. My dad was in the war, in the army, but like in in non war time between mm-hmm. World War Two, like in the early sixties. Uh, so uh, we didn't have anyone in like actively in the war, like family members. So uh, maybe if I would have had an uncle or something, the whole family and I certainly would have been maybe more engaged in it. But I don't recall. And it also might just be I don't recall. Like maybe maybe I did sit in front of food dinner time stuff. Don't yeah. really remember that stuff. Okay, so another thing uh, that kind of gets brought up in esports, you get uh, uh, topics brought up around racism and sexism all the time. But you actually grew up again around a time that uh, racism was it, it was a big issue. Uh, civil rights movements and stuff like that. And so you got to kind of see some of that stuff firsthand. What was that like? Um, again, I would say that I witnessed it from afar because the communities I lived in were pretty insular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went to a high school of 450 kids at the time, four grades, um, in, again, Incline Village, Nevada, Lake Tahoe. Um, one, one African-American kid, uh, maybe two in my high school career. Um, and a lot, uh, a start of a lot more of, I would say, a Mexican immigration, right? Because again, tourist community, service community, a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity uh, in states of Nevada, California, et cetera. Um, long before illegal immigration or any of these things were topics, right? They were just people moving in. So I would say my my relationship, you know, the people I hung out with were white and maybe more apt to be uh, a few Mexicans and certainly so insulated, right? Um, but not in a negative way, not in our like, you know, we like white people only racist way. So very like, uh, again, because we are a tourist community, like people from all over the world come to Lake Tahoe. So in that sense, kind of a melting pot, although the people that could afford to live there uh, and work there maybe uh, were not so much uh, a melting pot, at least at that time, the 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 houses on the lake are multi-million dollars and people would people would buy million dollar mansions just for the lot, so they tear down someone else's million-dollar mansion to put their own two million-dollar mansion up because they wanted the land. It was I didn't live in any of those, mind you. Very, very uh, middle class in Lake Tahoe, working family, serve in the service industry, so to speak. So, uh, uh, but that was more certainly swirling around the news of the day, right? And certainly stuff we talked about a lot, lot more um, was uh, what was going on in America for sure. My parents are very was raised like. None of that shit matters. It doesn't matter what your religion is. You know, we, we, we were religious for a little while, then we weren't. You know, we were raised Roman Catholic. 
but then we weren't because it was our choice. And so very open-minded parenting. So we never had any fucked up biases that I think a lot of white kids probably maybe get, uh, maybe less now than they did then. Um, so, you know, I, I, I never grew up with any sort of like, you're different, you're less because mm -hmm. of it, right? Ever. Um, and again, probably because of where I live. Now, put me in Detroit, and I grow up in Detroit in the 70s and 80s, I could have maybe a totally different vibe because Detroit went through some fucked up shit. We were right. we left for – my dad was in, a, uh, in the service industry. We, we were chasing uh, a different job. So he, you know, he didn't leave for any negative reasons of Detroit per se, but like that town went – a lot of our cities went to shit right now. So if I would have grown up in that environment, uh, regardless of my color, my biases would have maybe been different, right? Um, but again, I grew up in this like little tourist town. Uh, again, it's like growing up in a ski town. Um, yeah, I actually grew up so in a ski town. Very so. open. Yeah, very open. Very, um, very welcoming in that sense, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Long before, and you know, again, long before if you were Mexican and you were, you know, taking people's housekeeping jobs and dishwashing jobs legally or illegally, long before there was any fuss over it, it was just people doing jobs, yeah. right? Like it wasn't even it wasn't even a national topic of discussion right now I mean, you know now it obviously certainly is immigration illegal and legal um but yeah i know a long answer to the question no, but, no, uh, you're good. but certainly it's swirling around us that was happening but in our little world it was like why we're all cool like right um so yeah at least it seemed that way to me right so how often do you think that politics uh breaches into esports and is uh like a, a an actual major part in it like our actual political system shifting over to like esports itself i don't think really uh, countries politics play that much long term yet um do you think it into, will you know okay. um i don't know how much does politics really play into the development of sports now when you get into the politics of like the olympics and the world cups and like these kind of monstrosities of sports mm -hmm. certainly um politics interweave and bribery and collusion and all sorts of stuff interweave in those things and, and our level I mean, I guess governments getting involved to start federations that maybe help figure out how to properly visa players in and out of their countries for stuff is great stuff, right? We, we want to see that process streamlined. We would love, and we always uh, uh, nod to when we, you know, see this developer worked with the government to get these guys, you know, P1 visas or whatever the visa type might be for their skill set, you know? They are extraordinary athletes in their sense, so they get a special way in uh, versus denied, right? Um, so those things are cool, uh, but you know the NC2A in in the United States getting involved in collegiate esports and locking collegiate esports athletes down the same way they do athletes in colleges and uh, what a lot of us would say would be taking extreme advantage of their talent for the profit of colleges and the system mm -hmm. um, is not um, it's not fair anymore um, and you know the free education is not worth what they're being you know what's being made off of them and how they cannot profit until they leave uh and that's been a debate for quite a while so like i certainly don't want uh those kind of, and they're not really a government agency in that sense but they are obviously a knotted to regulatory body of collegiate sports um uh so I guess it probably depends on what you mean you know but we do see a lot of countries starting esports federations to start talking about it and what it means for their country and well, how they should regulate it and stuff. And in, in some regards, that's good. But I think with everything, you want to keep an eye on any sort of regulation and make sure, you know, what is the regulation doing? Who is it fair for all parties? Is it is it biased towards a certain entity within the ecosystem? 
you know, we're we're not a easily definable business yet. We're a whole bunch of different ideas and business plans jammed in in a sports like scenario slash entertainment slash rock concert um, slash talent agency slash marketing firm. So, like, we're not easily like, oh, we're just like football. So everything should be regulated like football. We're not like that. We're not like basketball. We're not like tennis. We're not like, so uh, I think it depends on uh, where they step in and what they what they look to achieve. Mm-hmm. When it comes to some sort of government bodies, what do you think the about the idea of people comparing uh, esports to sports? Then, because you mentioned that we're not like that, and I generally would agree with that. I I actually think it's um, at least from my perspective in working with players, I don't know if it's good to say that we are just like sports because I don't think it lets us uh, appropriately like get to where the player is at always and work with them. So at least from my perspective, I could see it being very uh, poor a lot of the times. Um, but what do you I, think about I, that? I, I think uh, I think it's disingenuous to say that we're not incredibly that what the entertainment value is not incredibly sports like mm-hmm. that is for sure. Like the idea of me sitting somewhere watching you play basketball and beat other people is arguably no different than me sitting somewhere watching you play StarCraft beating yeah. another person. I am passively entertained by the skill you are doing. Right. I mean, it could be all sorts of you could be dancing. You could be certainly you could be doing all sorts of things in front of me and I'm enjoying it. it could be a movie. But we've all come to the general understanding that there is a skill gap in playing games that defines it much like there's a skill gap in sports. You and I can go shoot basketball hoops in my fucking driveway. Even I got a hoop. I don't have a hoop. But you know what I mean? Like hoops, an accessible thing, right? A basketball hoop. Uh, a tennis court. We can go do those exact same things, but there's a line very much drawn in the sand what you and I can do with a basketball and what we would then pay others to be entertained as they do it, right? There is a entertainment thing there, but that entertainment thing is based on a skill gap, right? Going to the movie is an entertainment value based on this sweeping epic thing that a whole bunch of people put together for you to watch, right? There's a skill in that. It's not athletic, right? It's not a... Directors compete. There's awards, and you know, tangent. I'm not going to go there. But point being, I think that is very sports-like. It is, it, and then where it continues is how a player now treats his life is very much how an athlete treats their life. Right? There is practice. There is there is proper in-game practice, like you're practicing with your team. You're actually doing the thing. There's drills and other things you now do at the top level that are out of game. There are mental things you do. There are dietary things you do. There are exercise and sleep things you do. Like the best players and the best teams in the world are treating themselves much more like athletic machines, if that makes sense, mind and body, than just kids hunched over a keyboard, right? Um, uh, You need to have the skill set of the kid hunched over the keyboard, but you then need to properly take care of the machine, right, uh, mm-hmm. to continually win. Uh, Astralis is a prime example of a fine-tuned oh. machine in one game that that is far beyond their skill set in-game because there are people just as good as them in the server, often against them, but the whole package is what they've now developed. That's very that's very pro-sports athletic-like, very, very training mindset. Um, so I think in that sense, we're very sports-like. A lot is very sports-like, right? Um, where I think it starts to fall down is if you try to put it too much into one sport. We're like football. We're like basketball. And I think the biggest mis- misnomer is esports is many sports, right? Yeah. We get thrown out as the main three. <clears throat> the mainstream uses our words synonymously. Whether it's League of Legends, Counter-Strike, Smash, Overwatch, yeah. uh, you know, Rocket League, or uh, a new Fortnite event, right? Or some brand new goddamn VR. It's all esports. 
Yeah, but like, they don't define sports like that. They don't generalize sports like that. When they start talking about sports, they talk about the sport. They talk about basketball. They talk about football. They talk about baseball, and they dive in. But we're like this big amalgam. It's like games are all the same. It's all esports. No, like a Counter Strike fan is not a League of Legends fan, and the pro of League of Legends is not a pro of Counter Strike. We don't cross pollinate the same way. Again, much like sports, you don't cross pollinate. Now there are esports fans who watch several different divisions of games. Certainly different. I I watch several, but it's not. We're not all one big happy mess, right? They throw our they throw our metrics together. They throw our data, our stream hours. They throw all our businesses in one fell esports hoop. But they don't do that for sports. When Coca Cola is going to invest in sports, they figure out what sport they're going to invest in, right? And they go, okay, we're going to do we're going to do football this year. We're going to do the Olympics again. We're going to do World Cup again, right? They don't just go, oh, let's throw money at sports. But we this esports term seems to be thrown around in that weird way. So. Depending on what game you're involved in, you can then maybe drill down to what sport it's even closer to, right? Like when you get to a business side of it. Like if you look at League of Legends and you look at the Overwatch League, those two closed leagues, you could then say, okay, they are mimicking the North American closed sports league of basketball, baseball, football, hockey, right? Mm -hmm. They are locked in. They are franchised. There is no relegation. There's no getting in or out without a buy-in or buy-out. Uh, and it's locked in. The only thing that though this these sports don't have yet is a pure draft system where you don't sign with who you play with, so to speak, and you don't get picked as a rookie, right? They don't have those kind of systems yet. But that so then you could say those esports are like those sports. And, and you can start digging deeper. Like, do they do rev share? How does the team ownership work, right? Um because I think the fan base is very sports like, right? We're buying jerseys, we're going to events, we're traveling, like we're like so I think I think we are very sports-like, but I don't like when it's all thrown in one big basket, right? Because Counter-Strike is nothing like Overwatch, yeah. right? We are more like an open-circuit golf tennis thing that is team-based, right? Because anyone can throw a Counter-Strike tournament. Um, we don't quite have the PGA as a one-defining body, but multiple golf t- courses, individually-owned golf courses, throw tournaments on a weekend, Right. The rest of the year, they're a golf course that the public or the private can use, right? But for that one week, they're a PGA event, right? Um, we don't have a one-sanctioning body in Counter-Strike, per se. We have quite a few. We have nine tournament organizers. But our golf course moves all around, right? Our tennis court moves all around, right? Um, and, and League and Overwatch especially are trying to build a very regional, very – I mean, Overwatch even more so, right? Because they've defined that they're going to be regional. They've yeah. named their teams after cities. They are going to move to cities. They are an NFL. Right, they have NFL owners. Yeah. Right. Um. So they. Uh, so in that sense, you can say, okay, let's look at Overwatch versus NFL. Right. So I, I don't mind those drill downs. I just don't like the, the big fluffy drill down because it really kind of falls apart after a while. Like, because we're not franchised. We have 30, 40 teams in Counter Strike. Now are they all top ten? Obviously not. But within the top thirty, they rotate quite a bit up and down that top twenty. Um, so maybe an, uh, a purely locked down league would never work in Counter-Strike. We're too far in an ecosystem. Uh, same with Dota. You probably wouldn't want to do that, but maybe for Overwatch, it's a newer game, uh, you know, a uh, different kind of mentality to it. Maybe it makes sense for a developer to lock that down. So I think you just got to be, you just want to be cognizant of when you use the sports analogy. I mean, I, I, like I was one of the guys, I wouldn't say we came up with the term, but like Goffrag, that 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 term esports was in our slogan. Your daily dose of esports was our slogan for a very long time. Like we embraced that word. To us, it was 
electronic sports. It was yeah. our site was like ESPN. We that was our idol was the sports coverage sites. Uh, how they did rosters, how they did the score, but like the box scores, all those things reflected what our sports guys read every day in the sports press, right? We wanted to emulate that in esports. So, in, in some regards, it's it, it, it's a great way to um, to describe it, right? I think it people people don't like it anymore because the people jump on the word sports and they think athleticism, they think guys run in the mile or or you know big ass athletics. And here I am making a million dollars doing this. Click click click. That's not athletic. That's not esports. Is you got to move around. You got yes, I get that kind of falls down, right? These guys aren't running, you know, world record miles when, they, when they're when uh, they competing. But I think, again, at the high level of all these proper esports, there is a discipline and an athleticism. To, to maintain form, you have to, again, have a certain uh, way about you. Um, and, and so, like, let them poo-poo on the – they're not really athletes. Yeah, okay. So Our, our bowlers? Our right. bowlers? I mean, they got one strong arm. Um, you know, and then people start debating whether it's chess a game or a sport, yeah. because if you use the word sport, does it have to be athletic? But some people would tell you that chess is a sport, and that's obviously even less movement. Uh, but certainly the mental capacity of something like that is, is, is astounding. Anyway, long ramble, very sports-like, and then not, yeah. right? I think where we're getting in trouble, and there's been lots of articles recently, and then we'll move on, is that the business side is not sports-like enough Uh in its monetization, like that's where it falls down a lot, right? Like, yeah, we're filling stadiums. People are watching, right? So that's very sports-like, right? People are cheering, they're screaming, they're buying jerseys, they they have favorites, they have villains, um, and it's not fake. So it's not wrestling. It's not a it's not a rock concert. It's it's the, the entertainment is in the win and the loss, right? Um, but then the NFL monetizes through stadiums and gate sales and a whole lot of other things and TV rights. And all sorts of things that we don't do yet. So, but some of our teams are spending as if they are the NFL. So it's like the revenue's not catching up to the the dream yet. I think in some regards, right? And that's where the idea of we're just like sports falls down. We're not just like sports. Our fans are the people that kind of stopped watching sports, and sports is chasing, right? So yes, the 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 idea is sports, like the competition. But how you come at us, how you advertise to us, how you monetize us, you cannot do like the NFL or traditional sports because we're no longer we're not we're, we left that. We don't watch TV, we don't buy magazines, we don't buy newspapers. And we, I, you know, I'm I'm not quite the demographic I speak about. Uh, you know, that's probably about 20 years younger. But this you, this you lost generation, yeah, they've all you all moved to new media, right? You cut the cable, you don't fucking pay for cock, you don't pay for TV anymore. Uh, you know, uh, so. Uh, old sports is chasing us. New sports, esports, whatever. New sports is kind of a, a funny parody of that word, mind you. Um, so uh, that is kind of intriguing. So why would we fall right back into their monetization traps when, like, we need to move fast? We're a digital age, like uh, digital skins, all this wacky stuff. Our trading cards are digital, man. They're on my iPad. Um, so uh, similar but different. But and you can look at it like so. Me as a player guy. I look at all the lessons. So, and that's where we are very sports like, right? The players of esports have slowly started to realize that they are the commodity. They are the talent. They are the thing. They are not just part of it. They are it. And with a gap comes, you can't do this without me, right? Yeah. The people won't show up. 
right? And so there's leverage there. There's power there. Yeah. You know, this whole thing is still being built. So it's not like these guys are like making their picket signs, right? And they're going to like, they're not striking. They, you know, none of that kind of stuff in esports is happening. But at least their voice is starting to be organized, again, much like traditional sports slowly did, to then give it to those around them in the ecosystem and say, hey, we as players of football don't like this. We as players of basketball don't agree with this, right? And they all did this slowly over their course of their sports. And now you see esports starting to do this. League of Legends has kind of a player association. Counter-Strike has a player association. We're not the, we won't be the last, yeah. right? It's just a, it's the, it's the nature of the growing of it, right? First came players that were better. Then came owners that saw an investment worthwhile with helping players in exchange for slapping someone else's logo on their shit to help them travel, right? Then came paying them to do that because there was more money. Then came tournament organizers going, oh shit. There's something to be said about being the people that own the playing field and throwing the event, throwing the festival, owning the, the stage, right? And now 20 years later, here we are still rocking and rolling, right? Um, so lots of lessons to be learned player-wise, how they were treated, how we're treated now, how we want to be treated, uh, how owners need to do their rev shares, how they need to be treated then and now. Uh, it's like we're an accelerated world of sports. that took them 100 and some odd years to kind of get their shit from, hey, let's swing a bat and play baseball to where they are now as a business all around the ad ecosystem. And I think we're just accelerating that, thankfully, because we can look at all those mistakes. Team owners can look at what sports team owners did good and bad, tournament organizers, what they did with gates and uh, concessions and all different things. And so we're all learning how to build this new thing, this esports, at a very accelerated rate. And the idea is like, let's not repeat the stupid shit that sports did. Right, they learned those mistakes. Why are we even going down those roads? Right, uh, let's stop that now before we're all too entrenched in a system that's archaic already. Right, yeah, 100%. long, long rambling no, no, question, Blake. It, they, it happens they, a lot. That, I'm okay with this. I can, I can, I have all day, so uh, I don't know if you do, <laughs> but I do. Uh, so looking at uh, you, you mentioned like the, the players association and you mentioned League of Legends and Counter Strike. Um, from the outside looking in, I don't view those two organizations as being equivalent. Like one of them I felt like was really the player standing up and kind of doing it. And then the League of Legends one, it feels from the outside looking in, not nearly like a player's association, but almost like a front saying, hey, we have this. Um, and the players have this. So look at it. They, they already have this. Whereas the, the Counter-Strike was a movement. Um, and it's one of the things that I've actually said is the problem with seeing uh, an Overwatch Players Association startup is the players need to move together. And if they're unwilling to do that, if only one or two people are willing to do that, it will never start. So what do you think is the difference that made Counter-Strike in what I would view a, a, a fully functional Players Association, I think? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think you, the word you use... Um... It's historically the word used uh, when you're talking about any sports player association. Yeah. It starts as a movement, right? It was a movement in Counter-Strike a couple years ago for these players. Actually, before even the PA situation arose from literally two years ago to roughly right about now, November, December. But even before that, the players were already starting to get in Skype groups and going, hey, man, with everyone caring about Counter-Strike again and all these different tournaments we have to go to, well, let's start getting our voice organized so we can tell tournament organizers, this is how we like our practice conditions. This is how we like this, that, and the other. You know, these media days are screwy. Can we, you know, just little things that are like quality of life issues yeah. is what we call them, right? Um, not ecosystem issues in the sense of I'm not getting paid enough or I'm getting too paid too, you know. No, it wasn't finance. It was like literally just quality of life stuff like Jesus. 
we were oversaturation. Everyone, the mother wanted to do Counter-Strike. Um, and so the players started to have conversations. Then it turned into a movement with the PA situation with team owners trying to force uh, players to drop one league and, and join another. Uh, and more, not so much about the idea of their league, but more about how they went about it is, I think, what started the movement more than anything else. Water on the bridge now. Um, yep. But literally, that was one of the movement starters for sure. Um, whereas, um, and I think... I don't think a player association really gets legs or has any power or really gets anything done and organizes itself properly if the players don't give a shit. It doesn't mean all of them, every player who plays the game has to give a shit, but you need a strong enough core and an active enough core that that wants to do it because you can't really do it for them because yeah. the power is in them. The power is in them wanting to do it and them understanding why they want to do it and how to use it, right? Mm -hmm. Like. You can't preach it. It's because it's not a financial thing. It's not like hey, if you do this, you'll make twelve million dollars next year. Like there's no financial necessarily reward. It's more of an ecosystem. Get your voice out there. Help shape the future of your game. Be part of it. Don't just sit and get paid. Kind of mentality that maybe leads to you know rev share deals and all those things like Real Sports has years from now for a player association. But right now it's about standardize your voice to all these people in the ecosystem, whether they're your team owners, whether they're the tournament organizers, whether they're the other you know teammates. Um, new players in the scene, et cetera. Uh, and they got it. Like and I think part of that is this game is 20 years old. Yeah. Some of these players have been playing for a very long time through through many ver versions, through many bad contracts, through many good contracts as well. So they're also a very, like in the history of eSports, Counter-Strike players are veteran status in the sense of how long they've just, how long our scenes existed, right? Mm -hmm. Through ups and bads, through through recessions, through bubbles popping, through TV coming and going, through all sorts of shit, the game kind of endured. Now, it certainly, it certainly was near, it was dead, probably, you know, in the sense of, like, we didn't have a lot of tournaments the last year or so before Go. Like, it was dead, but, like, Source was kind of still going. Like, it was on life support, if you would say. But, like, again, historic game. Lots of old players that had been burned before. Uh, so they, they just have a lot more experience of shit, right? Tournament organizers, all sorts of stuff. So conversely, Riot decides that, and I don't know League of Legends players. I never really conversed with them then or now. So I don't know if behind the scenes they were active and they wanted to do something and Riot helped them, or if this was Riot purely going, you know, you guys, I don't know if Riot did it for the PR reason of, hey, let's have a player association because yeah. we have a closed North American Sports League and that's what we're supposed to do. Um, or if they were truly philanthropic about it and said, no, since we are doing this like a sport and we're being organized and our team owners are organized, then let us help you organize, right? And it, it, they did hire, uh, uh, from what I heard, the story was they uh, they put three lawyers before the players um, that the players then voted on which one to run the association. The players voted on a guy named Hal Biakis. Biakis? Biliakis? Might be an L in there. Biakis. A uh, very well-known player attorney type, player lawyer, uh, baseball guy, but player player side of baseball when it came to his legal stuff, right? So um, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. If he's a player-centric lawyer uh, coming from a professional sport, that that's a good hire, right? Now, yeah. uh, do we worry that he's being paid by Riot? So will he really, you know, if his job is to properly build a player association that is... Uh, legally set up to protect players and take their voice and do all the stuff that that's supposed to do 
And if he does all that, that's great. People are, people are, you know, cynics like me are like, well, Riot is paying him. That's how does I Does he feel. really care? You know, is he a puppet? And I don't want to be that guy because I don't know how, and that would be disingenuous to his career yeah. to say that he's now unethical magically because Riot's paying him. I certainly hope, you know, knock on wood, that uh, it is being built to be spun off and be eventually independent and get their income from somewhere else and not from the developer who owns the league uh, in concert with team owners, right? And then that independent player association starts fighting for rev share and all sorts of player rights stuff, right? Now, conversely, the players that play League of Legends might just be happy as pigs and shit, right? They they might think they're overpaid, their schedule is great, their conditions when they go play those matches is just dreamy, and they have nothing to complain about. That's awesome, right? I can't I can't tell them to get mad about yeah. shit if they have no reason to get mad, right? Um, I would say if they're making millions and you're making thousands, the equation is wrong, right? And I, but I don't know league. I have no idea of their their financials. Um, you know, our, our job at the player association is to start figuring out how everyone's doing in the ecosystem and when and when and where it's time to start talking about direct player rev share. You do that, right? And then you talk to your owners and you go, okay, well now you can pay your players less on a salary basis because we're sharing in the ecosystem differently, right? So it's only fair that you you know the kid can't. You know, pro like LeBron James is a prime example, right? He makes stupid amount of money from his pro team, but he makes doubly stupid uh, amount of money from his sponsorships and stuff that is him and his agencies work on, right? That benefit him, that benefit the team he plays for, but aren't necessarily at the burden of the labor budget of the team he plays for, right? But they can't use him the same way, right? Yeah. So it's a division of all that. It's division of rights and likeness usage and naming all those things that are separated in pro sports, we're not separated yet either, right? Players associations can help you separate those things because then you can go to a Counter-Strike guy, okay, well, now you have these deals with the tournament organizers you play with. They are direct. So players get directly this. Team owners get directly this when they participate. So therefore, it makes sense that maybe your team owner plays, pays you a little less a month because you're making it up over here and you're making it up over here, right? You can't be greedy. You have to think about an ecosystem here, right? That team owner, you want him to keep a Counter-Strike division. You can't make it stupid for him, any more stupid than it already is. And again, these are all, like, future things. These are all, like, sports things, right? Like, NBA, the players of the NBA make approximately 50% of every dollar that comes into the revenue. Uh, every, uh, approximately half of every dollar that comes into the NBA's revenue goes into a player's pocket somehow or another, right? That's how it works via various ways, right? Whether it's their salaries, whether it's their rev shares, the TV, all those different things. But roughly half of the revenue goes to players, right? Other yeah. sports are slightly less than half, right? They're in the 40s, right? Give or take the sport. So we're not there. We're not like owners are just now starting to talk about rev share, right? And that's why owners like these franchise leagues, right? They love this idea because it gives them guarantee into something long-term. They trust Blizzard. They trust Riot. They trust in this. doesn't mean they don't like Counter-Strike's open model. It's a different model, right? It gives them a different set of security, right? And a different set of rev share, right? To rev share in Overwatch, it's between me and Blizzard, right? If I want to rev share as a team owner in Counter-Strike, I got to talk to ESL. I got to talk to Face It. I got to talk to Star Ladder. I got to talk to E-League. I got to talk to um, PGL. I got to talk to PLG, who just did an event in Abu Dhabi. I can keep going, right? In size, they go down, right? For Refresh is a big one now. So, and I still want to do all those deals. I want all those, like, it's no more like, it's getting, it's getting away from, oh, you're buying my plane ticket for my team. You're giving us a hotel room. We will come for free to win your prize money. 
mm-hmm. right? There's a that the, the owners are starting to go. Wait a minute. If I show, if my team shows up, more people care about your tickets. More people watch your stream. Yeah, my 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 sponsors want to be on your stage, but I can be somewhere else next weekend, right? That's how busy that game is. So whether it's appearance fees or an actual rev share for a long-term season of EPL and ECS, if you will, our online leagues, owners are starting to say, we have to diversify our revenue streams to exist. Our brand comes to your brand, so let's talk, right? And, and the conversations are happening, right? Some of these, the online leagues already do rev share with the team owners, right? It's already a process. So the next step is, okay, let's take the player's cut of that and slice it away, give them direct care about where they're playing, not like, okay, I just get a salary every month, I go somewhere. No, much like sports, you should care where you play more. Um, again, a lot of things to work on, but that's what player associations do, right? They, they, they worry about the collective voice of quality of life, tournament conditions, hotel, contracts with players between teams, all those different things. And then they start worrying about the financial of the ecosystem, right? And how it works because there is nobody, I don't care what ESL tells you. I don't care what a team owner tells you at its core, at its heart. There is no single individual that cares about an esport more than the guy that plays it and fucking gave up whatever he did in his life to do it. And that could be an Overwatch kid. That could be a league player. That could be a Counter-Strike guy. Yes, the financial part of the ecosystem gives a shit. The guys that have been doing Counter-Strike at ESL for 10, 15 years, some of them longer, they care. But they don't care. They will move to a different game. They will shift. They already do, right? It's the kid that wakes up and goes... Got a death match before scrims, all right? And that could be an MDL kid. It could be a kid that's not an MDL yet. It could be a kid like MBK, right? Or Jordan or the guys that are currently tier one active, right? They care the most. So for them to actively start organizing their voice, and again, I'm a Counter-Strike guy, so I love that we're doing it in Counter-Strike, and it's finally, it's done. I mean, we're we're organized, but now it's, 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 it's disseminating the voice and using it properly in a, in a, in a, in a, in a gregarious, good way for the ecosystem, right? Um, and it's a brand new thing. So how does it fit in an ecosystem that never had a player association, right? Um, so, but that's kind of growing it up. So I think every, I think every top sport that, uh, esport that decides it's going to be around for several years, the players should start thinking about it, right? Because it, it, it really doesn't hurt anything, and it only helps yeah. you organize. Even if you never go after rev shares and like, fuck you all, we want this, that, or the other, and we're not playing. Like, you can't really do that in yeah. our world, right? Um, but if you've got tournament organizers that want input, they want to know what the best table is, what the best desk is, what the best monitors are. Yeah, there's sponsor you know, constraints to some of these things, right? But, but if they want your feedback so they can provide a better playing field, there's no better way to give them that than a player association because you can organize it. You can say, these are what the 130 guys of Counter-Strike basically feel. If you decide to go against that, you know, this is how we feel. Now you know. You know, if, if, if the players of Counter-Strike basically said, you know, 85% of us think this way, and a tournament organizer goes the opposite, mm-hmm. and the players bitch, then it's no one's fault but the tournament organizer because we yeah. told you. We told you literally go the opposite way, and you didn't. And now you're mad that the players are mad at you, mm-hmm. and they don't, or they don't want to attend your events. Like, we told you not. Like, so it's kind of like, you want it's like help us help you in a lot of ways, right? Because a happy player is a happy tournament organizer, is a better event, is better counter strike, better yep. team owner, better happier fan, happier team owner, happier everybody, right? So 
because uh, only one team can win, right? So you want the best possible conditions when you lose, right? So because that happens a lot more, yeah. right? Uh, you don't want anything to so uh, player associations can help in so many ways. And then as the businesses all grow up, and if you and like, and again, I look at Overwatch and go, "Where's your player association?" I tweet about it every month, right? Because again, you can debate that Riot shouldn't be funding the player association of of LCS, or and I'm not sure if it's LCS and L L E E. It's LEC for Europe. LEC. I don't know if that covers both or it's a North American thing only. It's just because labor laws get labor laws get weird too, right? So we're a global association. We're not a U.S. based labor law association. So depending on what you, where your eSport is, like Overwatch is, uh, is run in North America. Uh, now, granted, they're going to spread out. But again, uh, the NFL has players from all over the, the, the world in it, but where they're based, where they're legalized, dictates labor laws yeah. and how they affect, right? So I look at Overwatch and go, oh, man, I, you guys, I know you guys are happy as pigs and shit. You finally have pro contracts. You have a place to play. Beautiful stage. No. Great production. Like, again, uh, so again, maybe they have nothing to bitch about. Um, uh, I mean, they did complain a little bit. Their season was long and it was grindy, and, and that got fixed a little bit for them. Um, but I look at the future of that and go: the longer you all take to get organized, the harder it'll be when that time comes. Like, why wait? Like, you know, like, again, like, why wait to organize if you're already like football or basketball or baseball? Like, why not or- organize now? Yeah, maybe you can't go after a player slice of the ninety million dollar Twitch broadcast deal. Maybe it's too soon for that because everyone's invested. No one's making revenue, and that has to go to Blizzard and the owners. It no. has to be split up. You know, I'm not saying go bitch and moan. I'm saying get organized so that whatever you want to complain about, you're more organized and you're more professional as, a, as, a, uh, as again, uh, a career within that industry, the talent, if you will, um, to, to, to give you feedback, whether it's to Overwatch or your team owners or your agents or whoever, right? It, uh, starting an association doesn't mean you're automatically going to strike and, and try to fuck everybody over. I had lots of conversations with team owners who thought that that was the goal, was like to burn down the goddamn town. It's like, no, I think we got to break some eggs here. I think we all have to rethink how you contract players, how you pay players, how they're paid by you, where they get their revenue, because you're paying a lot of money. Maybe it's not sustainable, and we all want, like, it's not necessarily a positive, right? Like, maybe... Maybe there's this is too labor heavy and they need they need revenue a different way. So it took some conversations with some of these guys to like no we're like it's it's how we make it sustainable for the sport if you yeah. will the game like the player association wants to guarantee the longevity of a pro playing career can't do it without tournament organizers and you can't do it without team owners and fans right all this big circle right so it, again it's not necessarily to piss in everyone's Cheerios right I, I think they I think a lot of people thought it was me. Scott doing it, and Scott likes to piss in Cheerios, so therefore I was coming loaded for bear. It's not me. I'm an advisor. Like this is a this is a board of players. This is a bunch of legal representation in Denmark that are not esports guys, so they don't have the bias or like the baggage I might have, if you will. Um, so like I am the I am the not the yes man of the association. I am the have you thought about this? What about this? Sports is like this. It because player the, our thing is set up that players vote on everything. Like we don't do shit. No. Right, I have opinions. I give them, but like, I don't dictate policy. I don't do shit. Uh, we go to meetings. We go to board meetings, and I say, "Think about this. Here's my take on this, and don't forget about this." Mm-hmm. Right, uh, and they, and that's kind of my role. Because um, yeah, again, I love this game, uh, uh, and some of the team owners might not think I love them, but I love that they love our game. 
yeah. right? And I, I want them all to stay. I want more of them to stay. I need to make it financially feasible for these players to make stupid amounts of money, right? And for ESL to exist and for Faced to exist still and all these things, right? Are we oversaturated? Yeah. Do we have to w work on some shit and start communicating and, and like, uh, the, because the, the players are a business when they walk in the server, right? To compete. Yeah. But outside of that, they are aligned. Everybody else is not aligned. ESL is ESL, and face it is face it, and refresh is refresh. They need to work a little bit better together for this ecosystem to thrive a little better, I think, and step on less toes. Um, but the natural selection of our ecosystem is also awesome, right? Like, refresh was not here two years ago. They, they were a team owner. And they went, you know what? I bet we could throw events that are pretty cool and different. And now you watch their events and you're like, holy fuck. I don't necessarily agree with the format, three matches at once and the way they do it. That's fine. Experimentation is great, though. Their production value is through the roof. Uh, and, you know, you, they, they, are, uh, they are additive to our environment, right? Um, and so they should be applauded and welcomed and helped in that sense, right? Just like ESL is additive, right? So and natural selection kind of weaves itself out, too. Gfinity showed up a couple years ago. Jumped right in, man. Throwing big money tournaments. Built a big thing in, in, in London uh, out of a movie theater, right? With one of their core games being Counter-Strike. They tried. They tried to wiggle into the schedule. They hired us. Like, the Angels came and helped them. They had great, they had good production value. They had Red Eye for a while working there full-time. But they realized, like, look, we can't. We can't wedge into the juggernaut that is Counter-Strike. It's not worth our time anymore, man. It's hard to get the teams to commit. Uh, the talent is scarcer and scarcer to commit to come talk about the, t the teams. And so let's shift. And they shifted. They do a lot more UK-based stuff, uh, different games, different genres. They do a lot of FIFA. They just they totally shifted. They said, you know, Counter-Strike's great. Not for us. Natural selection of the ecosystem basically kicked them out. They yeah. weren't forced out. They weren't told by Valve, you can't have a license. Fuck you. Um, so, like, the cream kind of rises. We figure out who's not worthy, and they very quickly don't throw events anymore for Counter-Strike, right? You shade our players too many times with prize money, you're going to have a hard time getting those players back, right? Um, and again, not to say that for Overwatch, what they're building over there is maybe not the exact perfect model for that esport, yeah. right? Maybe the open ecosystem, because again, they're carrying 12 players, they're carrying full staffs, like... Try traveling that. Like, so what they're trying to do and how they're trying to build the regional model and a regional fan base is maybe perfect. I don't think you could shove Counter-Strike into that bottle, yeah. right? Um, um, but maybe for that eSport, and again, what Riot is doing with two separate kind of closed leagues, European and North yeah. America, maybe it's perfect for what they're... Like, I'm not going to piss on their, their... It's too early to piss yeah. on their models, right? I've said it from the get-go, like, I don't necessarily agree with lockdown franchise model. I don't like the idea of, even though I used to be a team owner, that that there's no there's no in or out, right? Like, EG started because Alex and those guys wanted to be better than Craig and the other guys, right? And that was you could do that. There was a way all the way up to play right against them and beat them, right? So... Uh, and economics was how well you did in the boardroom, right? Like getting your sponsors and all those kind of things. So I like that business being competitive, right? The business of being a team owner um, that was in-game and out-of-game, right? In boardroom and in-game, right? And so when you lock it in and these X amount of owners who have this much money can play in this sandbox, again, for a team owner, might be the best perfect solution for them, that division, that game, how to build that revenue stream, right? Um, 
I don't think it builds the best possible global esport. We are a global game. We are a yeah. set of games that are played digitally. They are cheap. Uh, they are easily accessible. Um, so locking players down to a limited, only you 150 players get to be pros. Sorry, even though there's probably 5,000 others that are just as good, but you don't get the shot. And there's no way for you to get the shot, really. Uh, because the farm systems are also very locked and very broken. And like, yeah. again, you got to build the farm system for the farm system to find. It's a whole different vertical you got to build when you build an Overwatch League, right? Again, I've always said, don't necessarily agree with the old boys club of like being locked in and $20 million and you're in and fuck everybody else. And you could, ha you could never win a match. We had that. Didn't Shame win a match. No. No, rele no relegation. And I'm not a, I'm a North American guy. I'm a U.S. citizen. I mean, I'm a U.S. kid, right? So I grew up around U.S. sports. No relegation, right? Uh, and, and again, in, in sports like NASCAR and golf and tennis, where it's more based on rankings on who gets the tournaments and all that, where there, it is more open. NASCAR is a more open relegation system. You can buy in. There's charter teams, but you can get in. You can qualify your, your shitty racetrack company race team into a qualifier and get into the Daytona 500 via a series of qualifying events, right? You could be a golfer, get all the way to a PGA event without having to have a team owner have any sort of buy-in in that sense, right? Um, and then I look at the world's greatest game, the beautiful game, as they say, right? Football, what we would call soccer, as yes. bougies, right? So arguably the most popular game on the planet has relegation in its top leagues, right? Now, hard relegation, like is Barca going to get relegated? Probably not because of, again, economics and how they've built their systems. Are the chance of Barca getting relegated out of the top, not likely, but the risk is there, right? And the risk is also there for violations. The Italians got destroyed when they all got caught for match fixing, right? All, you know, what was it? Our, um, uh, Juventus, uh, a bunch of those in the Italian leagues when they got caught a couple years ago, what they could do for punishment was downgrade the team, right? Boom, down you go. Economic hit to the team, devastating hit to player, having to be either traded or moved down, right? That is a real harsh slap in the face for breaking fucking rules, right? It goes way beyond just fining you because you can afford those fines, right? Yeah. So I like a lot of that. Now, FIFA itself is one of the corrupt most corrupt organizations on the planet right next to IOC as when, when you start talking about sports federations, associations yeah. that are maybe not so, uh, that are, that are, that are, that are a little shady, if you will, like it's very historic. I mean, it's, it's well proven fact bribery for where the events go and all those kind of things. Right. So not necessarily the arbiters of moral guidance you want to look to either, but in the sense of that a team owner is never safe yeah. at its pure form. I kind of like, right. Um, so I would like a system where there was a little bit of both, right? You could get in, you could get out. Maybe like our online leagues have that in Counter-Strike, right? You can get, you can lose your EPL spot. An MDL team can get up and get into the EPL, right? Um, same thing with Face It. They're in and out, right? Very limited, not necessarily easy to lose your, your way if you're a pretty decent roster and you don't fuck around too much, but you can, yeah. right? Uh, so uh, again, it all goes back to lots of different business models for lots of different esports that all can possibly be successful. Overwatch, we won't really know till they all move to their cities yeah. and Boston travels to Philly and plays Philly on a Saturday and Miami goes to LA. Then we'll really see, because that's their goal, right? And they're several years away. This next season, they'll do a lot in LA and they'll travel a little bit, they've said, to a few venues. And we're starting to see venues pop up, Arlington venue. 
that is now open, the Arlington Esports Stadium, is being built for that, right? Yeah. It got used for Counter-Strike. Face it used for Counter-Strike, but at its core, it's being built by Infinite, mm-hmm. who owns the Houston Outlaws. And yeah. Dallas will use it, and Houston will use it. it is, it's a very, if you look at the stage, it's very Burbank, Overwatch, Studio-like, right? The way they did the LAD wrap, the whole nine yards. So it makes sense, right? So when they finally move, then we'll see if this regional thing really matters or if it doesn't or how much it helps yeah. or hurts or, 100%. you know, because you have to operate a lot more stadiums. You have, it, there's, there's, there's cost benefits. There's cost and benefits to all this thing, right? So we'll see. Um, that's kind of the wacky wild west of esports. We're all still – we fi- what we have all figured out is that, you know what, people absolutely will watch other people play. Yeah. Right? 100%. And people will dedicate their lives to the businesses around helping a player – and a player will dedicate his life to being the player, right? So it's all here, right? Now it's just figured out the be- how do we monetize the fan the best way? Yeah, football did it that way, but football did it that way before there was TV, and then there was TV, and you know. So what's the best way for a Cloud Nine owner to really monetize? And is it the same? Do you monetize the Counter Strike fan the exact same way that you monetize a League of Legends fan or a Rocket League fan or a Smash fan, right? Because there might there's some cross pollination there, but then there's not. Yeah. Right. So, and where Jack from Cloud Nine, you know, I use Jack because he's the he's the biggest owner on the planet right now. His yeah. valuations are the highest. He's 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 winning everything. Like he he again, he's doing very very well. Right. Um. So where Jack is different is you know you take take the crafts for a fa- example, like the Patriot owners. Right. Yeah. Jack owns like ten sports teams. The crafts don't. Right. So in 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 some regards, Jack is 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 more apt to be smarter about this than a traditional sports owner. So yeah, we're going after all the traditional sports owners money, but where they make their money is in areas that aren't where we probably should focus mm-hmm. because they're, they're dated ideas, right? Yeah. Um, it's going to a football stadium every Sunday and he gets a cut of that ticket sale. Right. And sometimes maybe they own a piece of the stadium, even depending on what city they're in, or they get tax breaks and all these different things that a traditional sports team owner uses to their advantage don't really exist in Jack's world yet. Jack's trying to bridge that gap uh, and figure himself out, right? Like, okay, well, I, I own the Spitfire, so now I, I'm going down a traditional route. I will have a stadium. So it, it's just interesting, right? Like, it's like I, if I was, I would take more advice from the endemics than I would from the sports guys because the sports guys are coming to us, yeah. right? They want to invest in our world, in our fan base, in this new thing. Right. And we already buy shirts. We already do the stuff that they primarily do. Yeah. Right. We already buy merch. We already sell merch and buy merch. Our fans do. Uh, we already uh, are starting to do broadcast deals with Twitch and all yeah. those different things, you know. And those are starting to be shared down the ecosystem from the tournament organizer to the team owner to the player. And uh, where we don't do it is team owners don't get a cut of an actual gate yet, right? They might get their rev share in a different way from an, an IEM Chicago event, mm-hmm. right? Um, because 16 teams don't show up to a Sunday football. Like, they're all spread out, right? So, like, uh, ESL can't share that gate with everybody in that building yet because they're still trying to figure out how to make money, sure. right? So it's all the ecosystems are similar but different, right? So, yeah, a long rambling thing about that. But, like, uh, that's where we're vastly different. Like, Jack owns a shitload of sports teams. It'd be like if you owned a basketball team, a football team, a baseball team, a hockey team, a bunch of tennis players, a couple race car drivers, uh, a couple golfers, uh, and then a few snowboarders, 
That's Jack, right? Like he's spread out all, all different kind of genres, uh, all different esports, and within that world that they all play in, and Jack's not alone. The ecosystems are vastly different. He is in esports that the developer pays him to be in, right? No cost to Jack. Labor is paid for via developer money to him, right? So it's like free money, right? So uh, free divisions to take the risk with a developer. He's in some that he had to buy into. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't write a check for $20 million, but they're on the hook for it, right? Yeah. So that's the opposite. And then he's in esports that are completely free market. He has to pay labor cost to a set of players to represent. And then sometimes he pays travel, and sometimes the tournament organizer pays travel. Mm -hmm. So, And those are all varied worlds that him and his crew have to deal with, right? No, nothing's easy. Nothing's... Like, it, so it depends on what team, what division, what player you're talking to. It, it's a mess, man. Uh, and it was a mess when I was a team owner, DG. It's only gotten bigger and crazier, right? You bet. All they've done is add zeros to everything. Yeah. Right? And lots of pressure to go with those zeros, right? Um, yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, think that's, I think that's a really, I think that's one of the best answers I've gotten for, like, the comparison of what the, the ecosystem definitely looks like and can feel like. How did mm. how did you start to care so much about people? I know you were in the service industry, and I've it sounds sometimes that your opinion of people who made a lot of money sometimes can be negative, uh, based on service experience and stories that you've told. A couple people, I remember, <laughs> I remember one story you working at a hotel and this really uh, haughty rich person coming in. So yeah, what what made you start to care so much about players? Because you obviously were on the team owner side, but what is it growing up that made you care so much about that about people? Um. Well, I think first and foremost, I'm a gamer yeah. at my core, um, and, and it's certainly you know n not of any skill level of note. So, I'm not trying to say it in that sense, but yeah. that I am a I am not a businessman. I am not a suit of any in in any business I've ever never been a suit. Um, so, at my heart, I am a gamer. So then, I think therefore that mat naturally leans me towards. Uh, when it comes to the world of esports being player-centric because that's who's playing the game, right? Um, when it comes to Counter-Strike, I was a player of the game, right? I was in a clan as a player that got me into this whole damn thing. I went to events with this clan, like UGP, right? I ended up running it. Again, for us, it was more like Tuesday softball than it was hardcore uh, Counter-Strike. Uh, but I very quickly went, whoa, I... I can't play for this team anymore. I'm the sixth guy. Then I was the seventh guy. Then I was the eighth guy. Then I was the ninth guy. Then I never played for the team, right? Uh, because, again, skill kept going up. And, again, this is – we were playing when 3D was forming, when complexity was forming. You know, they were quickly much better than us. They were investing. They were – these guys were pros, but we were, we were at those same events. Uh, they and others would kick our ass, but we were there, right? Um, so always player-centric, right? Um, and, and I think a lot of the early owners, same way, very player-centric. Um, and then I think certainly when I was at Gofrag, so I went from a player of UGP, uh, to then helping run Gofrag and being one of the owners of Gofrag, uh, our, our business revolved around what the players were doing. So again, like you reported on that. So fell in love even more so with like the idea of how fucking good these guys were, right? Uh, because when it's your job, you're watching even more Counter-Strike, right? You go past the players you're fans of or the teams you're fans of. And we, you know, we were all consuming this sport, uh, you know, for hours reading shit, right? I wasn't a writer, you know. Uh, I was more on the logistics managerial side of the business. Um, so I wasn't a journalist of it. Uh, so 
but again, just consumed by the sport, right? You could ask Duncan, you could ask Richard Lewis, guys that weren't with Gofrag and with various other sites around that time or with teams. It consumed us all. We were blown away that, the, again, this game just was our everything, right? And other people would say StarCraft was their everything. Brood yeah. War was their everything. This was our everything, right? Uh, and so we had a business around it. So certainly, then now you're, you're, you're reading about players and getting to know them on a whole different level. Uh, very player-centric. And even back then, shady owners and good owners, right? Shitty stories about players being fucked, whether it was by tournament organizers and then tournament organizers not paying team owners prize money so that no one was getting paid. So, like, that was shitty. And uh, who got burned the most? Players, because they're the ones that were playing the goddamn game we were all watching, right? So, yeah, team owners got burned. Uh, but really, uh, again, who got burned the most, right? So yeah. I, I very quickly realized, again, like, there's a skill gap here, and these guys are fucking amazing to watch, right? Um, now, I got into Counter-Strike as an adult, right? Like you said, mid-30s, 1999. So if you reel back Scott as a kid, and I think I talked about this on a few of these kind of podcasts where we talked about, like, where do you really think your motivation came from? I have to probably reel it back to high school, right? Um, and, you know, I was, I'm 5'6", right? And in high school, I was a few inches shorter. I was never tall, never big, never super athletic. But I liked athletic things, right? I liked baseball. I liked basketball. Wasn't really into football in the sense of a contact sport, so never really played peewee or any of those little things growing up. Uh, but I liked basketball a lot. But that's really fucking short, right? Um, and I liked baseball a little bit. Um, and so I quickly realized in high school, again, school of 450, not a big school at Incline, right? Yeah. Um, so I was actually on our junior varsity basketball team. Now I rode the pine. I got two minutes if we were winning at the end, right? And so that was the nature of it. Little shitty school. Uh, uh, but even in our little shitty world, like, the players on my team were far better than me. So it made sense, right? There's no angst, like, why am I not playing? I'm better. Like, it was none of that. I was like, just, and I was, my nickname in high school was Smitty. Uh, I went by Smitty, last name Smith, right? It's kind of a standard nickname. Uh, um, so... I quickly, and then, and then I quickly realized, like, I think I did one year on junior varsity as a player, right? And I traveled. It was great. Loved it. You know, putting the uniform on, getting nervous. Fucking, and the uniform was too big for me, you know, like the smallest they had. Like, um, but I just, you know, I, just that nervousness of, like, tying my shoes, like, that whole thing. If anyone's ever played any sort of, like, competitive athletics, especially, like, in that level, high school, when you're, you're still trying to figure, like, all those emotions are new, yeah. right? Uh, but, I, you know, running out to the song and, you know, all those things. Um, and again, never seeing time, I quickly realized that, like, you know, this is kind of a waste. I'm not going to see time. I'm not athletic enough. How can I still help, right? So, and I was, uh, I was good friends with the basketball coach in that sense, right? Because even as, like, the kid that never played, and there were, like, three of us, right, that never really played um, or very rarely played, if you will. Because, again, we were the practice kids, right? We, when we, when we yeah. played at home, you had, we were the kids you practiced against. Uh, and I, I pretty pretty decent little po point guard, by the way. My th my three pointer, uh, yeah, a little shot, set shot. Uh, anyway, um, long story short, like that after that season, I was like, you know, how do, I want to help, you know? And he's like, well, why don't you be the student manager? The guy Chalmer Dillard was our coach, Coach Dillard. He's like, um, why don't you be our manager? Um, you know, you could still travel, you still get the vibe, uh, but you know, you could actually be more helpful, you know. And, you know, and that manager is like water boy, right? And that's yeah. it. You're doing the water and um, uh, very small school. So, you know, we didn't have prima donna athletes yeah. or anything. That wasn't like we were, you know, in, in Nevada, we were double A. Um, so whereas triple A and quad A uh, were the big ones, right? It got bigger. Um, 
So like we traveled to places like Elko, Nevada and Eli, Nevada, and these little other small little, 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 again, 500 kid schools. And I was like, shit, I would love that. That'd be great. You know, uh, I could still be part of the team, still help, you know? And, and, and so I started student managing for, for all, basically all the sports teams at Incline. Um, although I ended up only doing like football and bas- baseball for one season because I want to do other stuff. I want to do drama and different things during school. So I focused on, uh, and I really like basketball the most, right? Um, and so I focused on being the student manager for the basketball team primarily. Yep. Um, and I liked Chalmer Dillard as the head coach the most. There were other coaches that I liked, but just Chalmer, I thought was really super cool dude. Um, and so I focused on that. And so I, and out of that, I, uh, they sent me to a couple of training camps. I learned how to tape ankles. I learned how to, you know, do more athletic related stuff like tape ankles, tape knees, when you ice, when you heat, you know, not just like, here's your water, like yeah. not just water boy shit, right? Like I actually a little bit more athletic stuff. And I was like, oh shit, this is, this could be a career. Like maybe like, cause like student manager leads to like student managers in college that lead to like sidelines of NFL teams, right? Like this is a career path. If you yeah. want to like mer- merge this medicine slash sports thing, right? I didn't know right, what I wanted to do, but I thought it was really cool. So I'm like, I went to these, cl- I went to these schools, did these classes, learned again. So I was taping everyone's ankles. I was taping, I knew how to tape your knee if you had a problem or how, how to tape your knee if it just needed support, you know, all these different ways to do stuff, right? Um, and I really liked it, right? Because um, again, I was part of the team. Uh, and this is where it's at its core. I was part of it. I felt the wins. I felt the aches and the losses. Uh, and since I didn't have athletic ability, I could still feel like I belonged, right? I had that camaraderie with the coaching staff and with the players, right? Um, and, and so I was getting my fix, right, of competition. Uh, but in reality, I was already starting to help players, right? Are you with me on this? Yeah. So um, I'm going to school in Nevada, Incline Village. I have decided my dad's in the service industry. He's working in hotels. He's working for logistics companies, all this different stuff. And I am in the backyard of one of the greatest hotel schools on the planet, UNLV, right, in Las Vegas. So I'm like, I want to go to UNLV for hotel restaurant management. That's what I want to do. Um, and the minute I – yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, what made you go into hotel and restaurant management instead of going into something related to, like, sports management? Um, well, hang on, because they're related. Okay. But I decided at its core, like, taping ankles was not something I want to do for a okay. living. Smelly, smelly locker rooms and being a doctor or being – like, and again, I, in college high school – maybe if I had been at a school with a big ass athletic program, you know, like some schools are, I would have had a different future vibe out of it. Uh, but I didn't necessarily get that out of incline. Right. So when I, when I decided I want to go to UNLV, a in-state tuition, so inexpensive for my yeah. family. Um, and, and like literally you went there or you went to Cornell on the East coast to go to hotel school. Those are the two. Right. Uh, and Cornell was really well known for its book learning and all of its, Ivy League-ish, if you will, when it comes to schools. Um, but UNLV was known for its on-the-ground training because that's where all the casinos were. That's where all the big-ass hotels were. If you want to learn how to run a fucking hotel, you go where the biggest hotels on the planet are, and they were in Vegas, right? Let alone if you want to learn a casino business and all that, right? If you want to learn how to feed people, learning how a city feeds thousands, right? What Gourmet and not. So Vegas was a natural choice. And close to home, my parents were, uh, you know, uh, Nevada, right? So not far away, uh, cheap for them. Uh, but then when I decided that, Chalmer Dillard, my coach, said, you should go, you should reach out to those guys and see um, if they need help with their basketball team. And UNLV at the time, uh, it's still to this day known for its basketball team, right? Uh, the Running Rebels, when I was going to school in high school and in college, 
really fucking solid basketball team. Tark the Shark was the coach. Jerry Tarkanian, well-known basketball coach, historic, at one point, most winningest coach in basketball between Fresno and UNLV. Uh, so, like, the, and that was the sport of Vegas, right? That was the sport of that college, and that was the sport of Vegas. So we had no pro teams then. You know, there's a hockey team there now. There's a football team moving there. But UNLV, Running Rebels basketball, was the shit, right? So I was like, oh, fuck, okay. What do you, do you like? Could I do that? Like, could I could I do this there? And he's like, yeah, I know a guy who he, he knew one of the assistant coaches was someone he knew. He reached out. And he goes, yeah, we actually need a student manager. Well, one of our guys is leaving, and uh, the new manager wants to recruit the new manage the new head student manager wants to recruit two student managers mm-hmm. to then train because student managers graduate, they leave, yeah. right? You're a student, uh, much like a player. So it was perfect timing. I ended up getting a full ride scholarship, which again in Vegas was like. Not very much money because, again, I was already an in-state, in-state student. UNLV was not an expensive school per credit to go to. But it covered room. It covered board. It covered basically everything but books. Um, if I had been an out-of-state student, it would have been far more expensive yeah. uh, in the sense of – but it was, a, it was a cheap ride anyway, but I got a full ride. Technically, I got a full ride scholarship to go to UNLV um, to be the student manager. So I did that, right? And uh, so now – and it was really a weird time in my life because, again, I, um, I'm in Vegas. Vegas is a crazy place to go to school. Uh, because of the casinos. Uh, it is a popular school for hotels, so it's a very popular school. Um, I'm part of the basketball team, which is an incredibly popular thing at school. Um, has, uh, you know, practice every day, all these different things. Um, I wasn't taping ankles or anything like that anymore. I was definitely more like water, and I, I, I was one of the guys that folded Tark's towel. If you're a basketball fan and you know Jerry Tarkanian, you know he had a soaked towel that he would grab, and he wouldn't drink water on the sidelines. He had a, he had a nice terry cloth towel, that we would soak with just enough water that it wouldn't drip, but he would grab it and he would suck on it. It was the weirdest fucking thing, man. And if you're a kid and you're ever at the beach or at the pool and you had a wet towel or you're in the bath, like you did that, you sucked the water out of a towel, yeah. right? He did that. He did that, right? So one of my jobs was to fold the towel and properly wet it. It sat on top of a dry towel on the floor. And one of the many things I did was fold Tark's towel. Um, uh, but that was then an eye-opening world to, like, college athletics, right, in the real world, because this team was incredibly popular. Uh, we won the PC – the division no longer exists. I think it's called the Big West now or the Big Sky. I don't know. It was a PC2A when, when I was there, the Pacific Coast Athletic Association. And we played teams like Fresno State and Santa Barbara State and, and all these different uh, kind of same-size regional schools, Utah, California. Um, we played UNR up north in Nevada and Reno. Um, and generally when it came to basketball, we destroyed them. Like our, our team was almost on a national level. Like we would go to the NCAA tournament. We would do these things. So in, we were, we were the bad asses of that sport, but other sports were much closer, football, baseball, et cetera. The division was much closer, but basketball was our shit. Like, like kids wanted to go play in Vegas, right? Like we'd play Georgetown. We'd play Maryland. We'd play Duke. We like our schedule was big because Tark was big, right? We would get TV fucking shit. So traveling with the team for that was a, it was just crazy, right? And again, I was no longer folding towels anymore, but I was like making sure guys' lockers had their fucking uniforms in them. And, you know, we had a Nike deal. So when new, they got new Nike shoes, everyone got their shoes in their lockers. Um, got to see the business of it as well, like how boosters came into play and alumni came into play and, uh, you know, athletic directors. And like, you know, we actually had sports medicine people that we worked with. Like, I, again, the, the people that, that when you asked, did I want to do those people were in our program as well. The guys that were actually getting degrees in sports medicine, those were the ones taping ankles 
and icing knees and talking to players after games and like doing the medicine side of it. Um, uh, and so I, I go there. I'm best of both worlds, right? So I'm I'm on this. I'm learning all about hotel stuff. Uh, I'm in this dream world of like hanging out with this crazy basketball team. And again, to your very earlier question, to like, what, am I uh, like racism and stuff? My first exposure to like large scale, like lots of African Americans, right? Because I was surrounded by them, right? And to me, they were just like whether it was Leon Samansky, the big tall white center, or Richie Adams, the big famous black center, they were just crazy basketball players to me. It was interesting because they are a different culture, right? I didn't grow up around, uh, you know, black kids, so I wasn't listening necessarily to the kind of music they were listening to or the culture, the clothes and all that. So then going from touristy Lake Tahoe to very touristy Las Vegas, don't get me wrong, still a very touristy demographic, but also dealing with like inner city, like some of these kids from inner city, like Richie Adams was near off a criminal, right? Like got a, got busted stealing cabs and all this different shit and drugs and stuff. So it was a different experience. Um, but I loved hanging out with those guys, man. They treated me like they, they I was super, I was so short. They were like, I don't know. Like I was just a funny white guy to them. I don't know. Um, we did get along. Like they'd listen to my Duran Duran and I would listen to their shit. And, like I, I remember turning a few guys on to shit that they had never heard, and they're like, we need to go buy this right now. This is the craziest shit. Like, stuff like Dream Academy and weird, like, life in a northern town, like this one-hit wonder by this one band, right? Um, and uh, it is crazy, surreal, like, altercations with these characters, right? Um, and it just, to this day, I wish I actually kept up with some of them. Some went out of the pros. Some never made it to the pros. Uh, but, like, again, just guys that, again— Black, white, whatever. I knew that in Vegas, if I got in trouble with anything, I could call this guy and he'd be like, "I got you. We're coming." Yeah. Right? Uh, just, just again, bonding over this this idea that we're on the same team, right? And we want to beat everyone's ass, right? And how can I help you to be better at your job? Now, I didn't stay there very long. I think I lasted a little over two years in Vegas because, again, I'm a very I'm a very logical guy, right? I'm driven less by emotion and more my logic in life. And I very quickly realized that I was wasting my time. Um, uh, uh, education-wise, yeah, right. I was having a great time. I was having maybe too great of a time. I was in a great fraternity. I joined a fraternity called Kappa Sigma, AKDB for life. Love those guys to this day. Um, so I was kind of distracted. What I wasn't distracted by was the gambling of Vegas. I grew up in Nevada, so I never fell into those pitfalls of like all my friends that I that I met in Vegas who came from elsewhere, guys from the East Coast, guys from wherever. They were losing their shit. They could bet on sports. They they were calling mom and dad saying, uh um, money. I need I need more book money. I've told this story, right? I never had I never fell into those traps, you know? Uh, because again, I the gambling thing was already like old to me. I was like, yeah. don't do it, don't do it, be smart. You're gonna give all your money away. Like, come on, I grew up around this, you know, there's smart gambling and there's not smart gambling. Um uh, you know, I partied like everybody else, right? Obviously you do in college, yeah. but I just quickly realized that I was kind of wasting like I, if I want to do this, if I want to get in the service industry, I want to be in uh, hotels or whatever, I very quickly rise. That business, the degree is really unnecessary for most of the jobs in hospitality yeah, and so, in, in the service industry. 